The Athletic. Welcome to the Athletic Women's Football Podcast. Coming up, tune over the moon at Old Trafford. Reading turn a few heads and big boots to fill. Hello there, it's Lindsay Hooper and with me for today's show, it's former Australia player Alicia Ferguson-Cook. Alicia, who is feeling like she's got the post-Aussie blues. Uh, yeah, it's a little bit darker here compared to Australia, Linz. I was back home for a month, so I'm missing the sunshine. Yeah, I can understand that. I mean, if you want any vitamin D from about three o'clock onwards, you're not going to get any anymore. No, I basically turned into an old age pension. I've been asleep at 8.30 every night since I got back <laughs> last week. I mean, it's been great. I've been having dinner at five o'clock and I'm actually really enjoying it. We made the perfect booking as well for this show. Aussies in WSL and we welcome Arsenal women correspondent to join us as well for Ask Blog, Tim Stillman. Tim, it was perfectly planned. Yeah, very much so. Uh, Glad to be back on. Thanks for having me again. I'm looking at both of your faces and they're screaming at me. Oh, Lindsay, go on, give us a quiz. So why not? It's World Cup quiz time. All about stats that forget about women. Everyone gets a go at answering each of these questions. Uh, We'll count at the points. So we'll start with this. Report said Ronaldo became the first player to score at five World Cups. The first male player, yes. But Marta was the first person ever to do it in 2019. Christine Sinclair has done it since as well. Uh, Who did Marta score that goal against? Bonus as well for the goalkeeper's name. You can just throw it out there, either of you. So, Oh, come on. That was us, wasn't it? Yeah, Australia. It was us and Linz was in goal. Come on, Linz, you've got to do better than this. I was excited <laughs> at that game. It was great. We beat them. It was in Montpellier. I, I was on this it? podcast after that game as well, actually. <laughs> yeah. I think it might have been my first time on. So, yeah. yeah. I think we say that's a point each. Yeah, yeah. Australia. Yeah, happy, happy to share the points on that one. <laughs> yeah, and we'll just confirm as well, because you just give everyone a nickname, Leash. Uh, <laughs> Lydia, Lydia Williams. Lydia Williams, Lid- of course. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Lydia Williams. Uh, they're the also goal. saying that Mbappe and Messi are closing in on the active player with the highest number of World Cup goals, Thomas Muller. Well, Muller has 10 to M- Mbappe and Messi's nine, but that record also belongs to Marta. How many World Cup goals has she scored? 17. Yeah. Ooh, There's a set. I used to cover Selassal Feminina. So like, yeah, I, yeah, I, I know these ones. These are good questions for me. Yeah. I used to have to try and play against her to stop her scoring. So I definitely know the answer to these questions. <laughs> yeah, you did. I mean, actually, and you got her in prime martyr time as well. Yeah, we did. We did, which is why it's always so enjoyable when we beat Brazil. It's always such a, what would I say, aggressive-natured match between Australia and Brazil. <laughs> I don't think there's too much love lost between us. So, no. Yeah, it's always nice to get a result. There's a, there's a little bit of not liking that you've got the same colours as well. <laughs> I know. You know what it is? I think it's, um, 
Yeah, it's definitely a style of play and sometimes, you know, um, yeah, they're, they're much better at convincing the referee of certain decisions, I think, than we are. So there's always a little bit of niggling going on there between oh, us I and wouldn't Brazil. want to go up against you Aussies. I played netball <laughs> against Australian netball players in London and, oh, my God, I came back with so many bruises. I played <laughs> in England for so long and never gone up against Australian opposition and then, yeah, regretted the day is true. Uh, Marta isn't the answer to the next one. Uh, Number three, Canada's first World Cup goal was declared the greatest moment in Canada's footballing history in the presence of Janine Becky, who won an Olympic gold medal with Canada in Tokyo. So the question is, how many goals did Canada score to win the gold medal and a bonus for how many of those Janine Becky scored? Well, this is a bit of an odd one. It went to penalties, didn't it? So are you including the pens on that? No, we'll go with open play. Yeah. Okay. My guest in in the uh, this for the whole tournament, right? And Canada didn't score many, but didn't let many in. So I'm going to say six. Uh, and and how many, Janine Becky? I'm going to say Janine Becky scored two. Okay. I have absolutely no idea on this one, so I'm just going to let Tim roll with it. To be honest, because I think he's got the points. I'm going to reveal he has got the points on both of those answers. So he's romping away with it. It was six and it was two for Becky. I know who I want in the Christmas quiz of the year, you know. Uh, Tim will be calling you. Um, Number four, Olivier Giroud just scored his 52nd goal to become France's all-time leading goal scorer on the men's side. Who is the leading goal scorer overall? A bonus if you can tell us how many goals. Tim, you're doing so well. We're going to let you start. (laughs) I'm going to say that the record goal scorer at the moment is Eugenie Le Sommer. And I'll have a guess at like 60 goals, both really plucked out of the air guesses. Mm. Mm. Does it, Gosh, does it help you if I say that one of those answers is right? <laughs> so it's Le Sommer then, Eugenie Le Sommer. <laughs> well, thanks, Lynn. It's great. <laughs> I love that. You can be on my team in the quiz. I'll need you. <laughs> I am a cheat, um, yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, let me see. How many did Giroud have? 52. Okay, I'll go 57 goals for Lesnar. Oh, you went the wrong way. Oh, 86. Less. 86 goals. Wow. Uh, number five, we'll give you a point for the for the Lesnar, Tim. This one, Leisha's got so much catching up to do, so um, listen up. Marcus Rashford has been described as the first Man United player to score three goals at a major tournament for England since Bobby Charlton in 1966. But Alessia Russo scored more at the Euros. So the question is, how many goals were scored for England by Man United players at the Euros this summer just gone? And Leisha, I've I've got to make you go first for this one. I can't keep poor Tim in the spotlight. Should we say nine? It's nine. You're going to go nine? Yeah. I'm going to go for Russo got four, Toon got one in the final, and I can't remember whether Ella Toon scored like in the 8-0 or something. I'm going to say six. It was six. <laughs> Tim, well done. Four for Russo. So, Lindsay, this is, the, key, the key for this is never get, never get players to do quizzes because our memory of actual football is horrible. <laughs> 
Like, it's horrible. You can't even ask me about old games. There's too much heading in the ball, memory shot. <laughs> anyway, anyway, that's my justification for getting absolutely walloped <laughs> by Tim. <laughs> Look, our justification was not to see you get walloped, right? It was to just point out that you add the word male and it's simple, yeah. isn't it? Uh, fighting yeah. the male default right here on this podcast. So, Tim, congratulations for winning our only male <laughs> on the podcast today. Well done. Uh, speaking of Russo just then, let's head to Old Trafford where her side this weekend took on Aston Villa. Oh, Badger could be in here. Oh, brilliant! Absolutely breathtaking! In front of over 30,000 fans at the Theatre of Dreams, United gave Villa nightmares. Uh, United are now second in the table on goal difference after this 5-0 win. And with five goal scorers, different ones, in Katie Zellum, Leah Galton, Alessia Russo, Anna Badger and Rachel Williams. It was a comprehensive performance, but speaking to both player of the match, Ella Toon, and Mark Skinner afterwards, they both said to me they were still not really satisfied. Do you get that as a former player, Leash, that there are levels that you want to hit and at 5-0, it's still not good enough? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think um, it's definitely more so the focus these days, I think, is being on really clinical and making sure that the ruthlessness is there for these teams. So, I think maybe historically teams have tended to be take their foot off the pedal if they've got to a comfortable lead. But I think now if you're getting into that winning mentality and if Manchester United really want to start challenging for those top spots, it has to be relentless and it has to you'd have to keep going. You know, we see the US women's national team like got it down to a T. You take no prisoners, you take that ruthless approach and that mentality that you have to keep going to the ninetieth minute. They were being super critical and I I guess that's a really good thing because of the standards that they're trying to maintain this season and they know what it takes. But I also want to just heap so much praise, Tim, on on individuals, on the team performance, on a Badger's goal. I love those ones when they kiss the underside of the crossbar and go in. It sounds beautiful, looks beautiful. I'm sure it's going to be in the list for goal of the month for December already. Uh, Rich Laverty is called it on a banger. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which is very, very accurate. Uh, do we know what that celebration meant? It was the five hands on the nose. Five hands, no. five fingers, sorry, if I actually I, I, ha- I haven't worked that out, no. But it, I was it, hoping you'd know this, Tim. I asked Ella too <laughs> and she had no idea afterwards. Yeah, yeah, it, it was, and, you know, hit the post as well on its way. Well, actually, I think it kind of came out and hit the post. Very aesthetically pleasing, but Ooh, United yeah. just got in, you know, when you look at the highlights, the amount of times they got in on that right-hand side. I know Mark Skinner said afterwards he was really pleased with the variety of goals and he felt that that was missing last season, that perhaps in the frustrating games they didn't have enough different ways to score, but they just looked like they got in down that right-hand side again and again with uh, with Nikita Paris and Ona Barge. Uh, I always mispronounce her name because it, it feels it is wrong a hard to one. say... Badger. Badger. <laughs> yeah, Badger. <laughs> I always want to say Badger. <laughs> not Badger. No, no not Badger. No. But, and, and obviously a really, really critical player for United as well. There's been a lot of um, a lot said about keeping Alessia Russo at the club, which mm-hmm. will be really, really important. But I think almost as important to keep Ona Badger as well. Yes. The thing that you say about Alessia Russo as well, it's that relationship with Ella Toon, which we saw in the Euros and we saw in this game as well. What would you say, Leash, about Villa and Rachel Daly in this one? Did United nullify her or was she having a quieter day? Because she's not going to perform every single one. 
Um, I think a bit of both lens. I know she got a, quite a heavy challenge early on in the game, didn't she? She went down yeah. and it looked like she got clattered on her knee, which could have maybe impacted her. But I just think, you know, United had most of the possession. Rach is great if you've got possession and you can and you can actually deliver crosses into her and get the ball to her. But she's not going to be affected. I mean, the distances between the players for Villa compared to the players at Man United, it always looks like this when you're struggling to defend. It's like your teammates are 20 yards away rather than being in close proximity. And I think, you know, Man United are, are playing some really attractive football at the moment. And you can just see it's a really nice place to get into as a player where you don't need to think. You're, you really are in that automatic mode where you're just bouncing things off and moving. But did Villa put up enough resistance? No. I think, you know, after a couple of those early goals in the first half, I just sometimes think, you know, maybe you just got to consolidate a little bit. You've got to consolidate, stay nice and tight. Let's just give ourselves five minutes where we can keep the opposition in front, not let them get in behind us because that's when it's really dangerous. And, you know, maybe they're missing a – I mean, they've got a lot of injuries as well. I mean, we're oh, seeing yeah. so, so many injuries across all the leagues and serious injuries. I think even that's a huge topic of discussion. But, you know, even the likes of having, you know, the experience of, say, Anita Asante, who's no longer there, I just think they're they're in a bit of a transition, aren't they, Villa, at the moment? Yeah, they only had three outfield players on the bench mm. for Carla Ward to choose from. Um, there were jokes going around. She even mentioned to me pre-match, have you got your boots? And I thought, well, she's really desperate now. Really, really desperate. Yeah. And, that, and look, that's tough. That's tough because the number of games now, the the number of games has increased and, and the level of performance has increased. And we're we're on the back of ten years of these players being, you know, proper full time professionals and and but it's difficult. It's difficult. And they just came off a break as well. So to continue that momentum, but you know, that's that's the luxury that the top teams have. They have the depth of squads. So if mm. they're picking up injuries, they've they've got the next crop being able to come through and replace players. And unfortunately Villa struggling with that at the moment. They seem to be suffering from Manchester United syndrome of the previous two seasons, which now they are certainly addressing, which is winning against teams around you, but against the top four, they've struggled. It's five games against Manchester United now where Villa have failed to score. So they haven't even scored, Tim. It could have in this one been six goals as well, the deficit. There was a disallowed goal from Leah Galton. And, you know, you have to say afterwards, the referee put her hands up and said, I got it wrong. I should have played advantage. Apologise to Mark Skinner, who also relayed that back to me in the interview. So I don't know whether we want to concentrate on it too much, but it should have stood. It it should have. And I think the other quite strange thing about it was if you're going to pull it back, I mean, it it looked like denial of goal scoring opportunity to me. Yes, I was saying that. Red card, yes. Yeah, and and Anna probably should have been sent, particularly if you're pulling the game back. Like to pull the game back in that scenario and then only book the player is kind of doubly frustrating, I think, um, from Manchester United's point of view. Obviously, n- nothing really huge riding on it on this occasion, but yeah, and you could see the referee; she was kind of, you know, like kind of laughing about it. I don't mean that she was taking it lightly, you know, but she realised straight away. But yeah, you do. I, I think sometimes you do in those moments in the WSL. We still kind of get those almost inexperienced um, maybe kind of decisions and, and I, I think it's just going to take a little while to address that. Tim, you still get that at, at all levels, honestly. And I say mm. this about referees. I do really feel for them just on that. They're humans. They make mistakes. You know, VAR isn't human and it makes mistakes as part of it. You know, like everything, it makes mistakes. I think the difficulty with referees is that 
you know, we train on a daily basis as players in a really high-performance environment with players around us. It's difficult for referees to train during the week because you, your training is being a referee. So, sure, you can get your positioning right, you can run around the field, you can kind of understand that. But basically, it's all game management. It's all reading the game. And you can't do that five days a week before you go into a game. It's just a really tough job as well, isn't it? But, mm. but you know what? commend the referee for putting their hands up and saying I made a mistake there because you know even as a player even as a player that's and I've been on the end of some horrendous decisions that blow you know just really frustrate you but a lot of the time if even at the end of the game for referee says look yep took you took it on board I made a mistake you know that's that's all you kind of want just just some type of communication between <clears> the players <throat> and the referees I think that's that's really crucial to that whole game management from both the athletes and the um, officials. Before we move on to two of the upsets, let's talk about Hannah Hampton being named in goal for this one. It was a first WSL start since September. She had started in the Cup as well. It was a situation that was handled really strangely, Alicia, because you've got managers, and this is at international and club level, who didn't name an injury, then we learn that there's an injury from the player herself. It felt strange. I think everyone's still got question marks over it, but she's back in. There were rumours that it was going to be longer than this. So what have you made of it all? Um, I think you only get parts of the story, Linz. You know, I think there's a lot more going on there. And I think this says something about the growth of the league as well, like with the kind of the increased media attention. Five to ten years ago, it would have been really easy to sweep something like this under the carpet. It's it's not new. Um, I, I know of stuff that's happened at Arsenal, like in the last five to ten years that, you know, never never really gets out. But there wasn't the curiosity there. There wasn't really the interest to really dig for those stories. And there is now. Um, and, and it's quite interesting, you know, it being an England international off the back of the summer. Um, and then you've got a situation where there seems to be a situation both with England and with the club at the same time. Um, and then so there's there's two sets of, I guess, briefing messages, whatever, uh, coming out of those when, when you're reporting. And it's yeah, it's it's a sign to me just of a shift in the kind of the media scrutiny and the type of story that, that just wouldn't have been out there five years ago because there weren't there weren't enough journalists to kind of dig them out. Mm. And I wonder if we'll start to see some of those murkier journalists appear, <laughs> appearing, trying to get to the bottom of these. We are not in that category, guys, so we can move on to the upsets. Uh, Reading 1, Spurs nil, and Liverpool 2, West Ham nil. And these were surprises over the weekend. Reading beating Spurs after an own goal from Amy Turner. There was uh, Liverpool scoring two early goals to beat West Ham. That was thanks to Kerry Holland and Katie Stengel. And I think it's it's playing out as it always does this league, whereby we get these surprises. And it's now very difficult, Tim, to predict who's going to go down, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I had Reading. <laughs> well, Alicia, Alicia's face says, no, I think it could be less. <laughs> like, but... You know, I just saw a goal difference of minus 23, yeah. Linz. I was just there like, is a minus okay. 23 goal difference. <laughs> I think it looked at one point like it could have been a two-horse race. Am I, am I kind enough in saying that, that Reading could have been dragged into it and now it looks like they're okay? Let's yeah, phrase I, it like that. I definitely think so. I, I had Reading to go down, I have to say, um, this summer, um, or at least I, I thought it would be Reading and Leicester. I think that result when they played one another, when Reading uh, scored twice in injury time against Leicester, I think that's kind of just finished things for Leicester. Uh, and I really think 
actually Reading deserve a lot of credit because they're the only club in the WSL not backed by a Premier League men's club. And the men's club at Reading, I mean, the finances are not fantastic, but they're still putting out a top flight women's team. So I think they, they deserve a lot of credit for that. And I think now they've got seven points on Leicester. I'm so, I don't think Leicester are going to get seven points. So I think Reading are safe. I, I think I've been banging on about this a lot. I think there has to be a, either a second relegation spot now with two teams coming up from the championship or at least a playoff between 11th in the WSL and second in the championship. Because when you look at that middle of the WSL at the moment, if there was a second bottom place, it would be really exciting because Spurs, Brighton, Liverpool, West Ham, like they're all quite close on points, but they're all miles clear of Leicester. So, mm. I, you know, listen, those clubs won't thank me for suggesting this, but I really think, I think A, the championship is strong enough to bring two teams up and B, I think to introduce a bit more jeopardy into the league, there should be a second relegation spot. But huge credit to to Reading for this win. I, th- I thought they were really good value for it and deserved it. You think they deserved it. Do you think they deserved it, Alicia? Because before this, Reading had won just one of 18 WSL games. They are now 10th. So that's how much it changes when you get a win in this league. Did you think that they were worthy winners? For this particular game? Yeah, sure. I think my bigger questions are, you know, Reading have been around, you know, stalwarts of this league for a long, long time now. and, And we haven't seen too much progression there. And I think that's probably a bit of a concern with the calibre of the players that they have had previously and that they still have, that they should be further up the table and they should be further along their development journey, whether it's either mid-table, but I just feel like now they're, they're on a slippery slope downwards and, you know, how do they turn that around and, and become, you know, the strong team that we have seen previously because I think they've just stagnated. Um, and that's for me over the like that is more concerning, I think, because you know we we look at the table in this league and competition at the top's great, but I think the gap is getting bigger and bigger from the top to the bottom, and then with the championship teams coming in, and that's what needs to be addressed next. Quick one on Spurs, Tim, because mm. producer Sophie alerted me to a tweet that you put out regarding Rianne Skinner and her use of strikers. What were you getting at? Yeah, so, I mean, obviously Tottenham had a good season last season, but everyone can see what they needed to do to try and bridge the gap to the top four is score more goals. They were, you know, really solid defence last season. Their defensive numbers were comparable with United and City, but goal scoring miles behind. So that's what they need to do. And it just strikes me that every summer they seem to bring quite good strikers in and then either don't play them or play them on the right wing and, you know, they're playing Drew Spence up front. I'm, I'm not sure I've ever seen her play there before. And um, and and it, it just strikes me as quite odd. And, like, they bought the Polish striker. Uh, this is another pronunciation I'm, I'm going to butcher, I'm afraid. But Karczewska, really, like a really, really promising striker, about six foot four as well, could be really, really awkward. But she's not playing. And I was looking at the numbers as well for Spurs this season. They've only produced an XG of more than one twice this season so they had that wow. Brighton game yeah. where they, they won 8-0 um, and then against Liverpool they produced an XG of 1.1 so the chances they're creating are not good and so I, I really I want to know how Rianne Skinner is going to look to kind of solve that because they need to be more dangerous going forward and I, I, I don't see how they're going to do that by buying good strikers and either playing them out of position or benching them yeah 
Yeah, because every, everyone thinks that the answer at this time of year is January. But like you say, if you don't use that window wisely and actually use them in the right positions, then it is a wasted resource, I guess. Uh, we'll have one each on Liverpool against West Ham. So this was Liverpool's second win since beating Chelsea on the opening weekend. They hadn't won in seven games. They're now ninth in the table. Tim, what are we saying about West Ham? Because they feel like the team that you just cannot predict. Going into a weekend, if you were to say to me, predict the score for West Ham this weekend, I don't think I could ever get it right. That's that's how much they are flip-flopping between good form and bad. Yeah, definitely. And and they've got they've brought some some good attacking players in and Brins Dottier has been really, really dangerous for them this season. Um IEC as well, who they got from Bayern Munich. But they're they're just ever since they've come up to the WSL, they've been such a spotty team like this. And and yeah, I, I wouldn't have had them down to lose this game. I d I don't think it's an absolute shock, but I definitely wouldn't have had them down to lose this game. And some of the players they've got like Lisa Evans, like Kate Longhurst, you know, who really, really know this league well. But they just they I and you know, there's so much they're changing managers quite a lot. But but on on Liverpool, I did want to say a word on Liverpool in, in terms of their important players. I mean, obviously Stengel, very important, someone they brought in in January, clearly a signing they had you know, um, earmarked for this division, not the championship. But on the right-hand side, they've got Koi Visto and Van der Sanden. And, and that's really, really, da- that's a really dangerous right-hand side. That is not a right-hand side of a relegation fighting team. And they, they got a lot of joy down there. Both their goals came down that side. And I think that partnership, they, they had Van der Sanden injured for quite a lot. Um, at the yeah, beginning of the season, the and yeah. now they've got those two together. Koi Visto, I think, is a really, really good fullback um, as well. M- much missed at Brighton, and and yeah, I think that right hand side. As soon as I looked at it, I thought they're not going to go down because those two players with Stengel alone, like I, mm. I don't see that quality at Reading or Leicester, got, for example. Got to throw as well, Missy Bokerns in there too. Yeah. Uh, finally, to a more predictable outcome, but a similarly tense finish as Arsenal welcomed Everton. Forward on to Miedemar. Still Miedemar. And still Miedemar. Magnificent Miedemar. Vintage Viv is back. <laughs> Gave Arsenal the 1-0 win in this one at Meadow Park. She'd never gone five games in the WSL without scoring before. So it was a good job. She came up and popped another one in here. And I say popped it in. I mean, it was an <laughs> exquisite finish, wasn't it, Leash? Yep, Viv Miedemar special, that one, and in typical Viv style, very understated celebration, as she does. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it was a great finish, wasn't it? Just she's for such a, you know, a tall player, her agility and uh, she's so light on her feet when she dragged the ball back inside onto her right foot and then just smashed it into the top corner. That's just like, that's like quintessential Viv Miedemar, isn't it? Yeah. Well, here's Tim's area of speciality, so we'll let you wax lyrical about Arsenal here. I think there'll be many people that think, you know, how come they couldn't close this game out earlier? It felt tense at the end, but there were bright sparks here. The the fact that we saw uh, Leah Williamson, uh, 200th appearance for Arsenal. It looks as well, doesn't it, like Sousa's back alongside her as well. So uh, what were your takeaways yeah it's a really interesting game there are a few things going on I mean Arsenal uh, finished this game with the next year 3.3 they should have scored a lot more goals quite similar to Juventus away in the Champions League they really should have won that game missing quite a lot of chances but at the moment Medem has scored in both of those games she had seven shots in this game 
Um, I think she pushed on a little bit higher than we usually see her because Arsenal are missing Beth Mead. So uh, in one respect, they should have won this game much more comfortably. They played well. And on the other, though, Arsenal have lost a lot of players through injury. So already they've been playing without their first-choice centre-backs for two months. Now they've lost Beth Mead and Kim Little, who are not only really good players, but they play very close together. And Arsenal are just, I spoke to Jonas Eideval about this after the game, they're just rebuilding on that right-hand side because they've got completely different players there now. They they play Katie McCabe on the right, really, really good player, but obviously very different to Beth. She's left-footed, she wants to come inside, whereas Arsenal had a really, really settled lineup for a good eight, nine months since the turn of the year. All of a sudden, they've just been losing players in the spine of the team. And so, you know, Jonas Eideval, he described it as we're rebuilding um, again. And, and you could see that at points in this game. But but Viv Miedema pushed a little bit higher in this game, got closer to goal. And and yeah, she she made the difference and she probably could have had one or two other goals as well. So how many times we're we talking about these big injuries and, and how much impact they have on these teams? Yeah. You know, I think we're seeing this more and they're not, you know, a lot of them are pretty serious injuries that are happening, but it's just like it can it can make or break your season. I think the overwhelming outcome of, of anything that you look into in terms of injuries in women's sport generally is that there's just not enough research leash. So if there's one call to arms, it's to spend money on researching injuries in women's sport, not taking information from the men's side and bringing it over to the women's, but having specific research for women's footballers. Um, yep. And that goes. Yeah, and we need to do that well, for a lot sport. of things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Look, it's, it's as simple as you know, we're still wearing men's boots. We're still wearing, you know, we've only we've got women's cut kits now. You know, there's a we aren't a smaller version of men. We are women, and it needs to be specific on that. It's. I just think it's you know the the question of whether they're contact injuries or non-contact injuries. I think that's the concern for me personally, and there's definitely a big question. You know, these players. Even if we talk about, say, in terms of the Australian players, the Matildas, you know, our top few players are playing between 50, you know, up to 50 or 60 games, which is comparable to what the men are playing um, if they're in Champions League and other competitions. So how we're adapting to that, how their bodies are adapting to that, I think it needs to be looked at because the loading, and it's not even just the loading of training, it's the travel like if I hear someone say to me they're professional footballers, they get the best travel, like they should just deal with it, I'm, I'll probably two-foot them in the chest because travel. <laughs> and she means know, it. Yeah. yeah, exactly, because recovery, recovery is the most crucial thing, not only for performance but for injury prevention. And when you're jumping straight on a plane and, you know, even through Europe and there's pressurised air in the planes and all this kind of stuff, there's so much so much that is taken into consideration to make sure these players are in the best possible health so they can perform at the best level. But this is the change in the last couple of years. There's far more games being played. And I think, um, you know, we need, to, we need to start focusing on how we can start preventing those injuries. This is a timely chat. We are going to continue this chat today, this very day, because coming up later, we're going to talk about boots and injuries in particular, Leash. Um, got an interview coming up about that very subject. So please hang around for that. Um, just to finish on Everton, as we didn't say anything about them, I just wanted to say, Tim, because you were talking about the rebuild that Jonas was talking about post-injuries, there has mm. been a complete rebuild at Everton. Yeah, definitely. They, they've gone. They've gone in a very, very 
easy to understand direction. They've taken a young player on loan from each of the top four in the WSL. So Emily Ramsey and goal, Gio Quiroz, who couldn't play in this game because she's on loan from Arsenal, Jess Park and Aggie Beaver-Jones. And so they're much younger. Um, and you could really tell one of the reasons it was so nervy in the last 10 minutes for Arsenal is because Everton are really built for the counter-attack with those kind of three players. And and Jonas said that when he picked his wide players, one of the reasons he picked Katie McCabe on the right was because it was kind of he wanted to push uh, their wide players back as mm-hmm. much as possible. And they, they carry so much threat on the counter. And I think in Brian Sorensen, they've gone for a bit more of a project coach, whereas last season, I think they made some fairly short termist appointments that didn't really work. Whereas now I think they've got a coach who's like wants to play a very specific style. They've taken in some young players. Clearly, I think they're looking at becoming a developer of talent, probably in the WSL. They've probably dropped, you know, some of the, like some of their ambition, some of their stated ambitions in recent season, I think, I think have just been too high and that's put pressure on them. Whereas now I think they're kind of, okay, let's not talk about winning the league and qualifying for the Champions League just yet. And, and it looks like they're, they're looking at younger players and looking at becoming a good developer of talent and, and trying to go from there. And, and, and I think that that's some kind of much needed clarity that Everton have really missed for a few years now. Yeah, here, here. In the other results of the weekend, Chelsea stayed top with a game in hand after Emma Hayes' 300th game in charge ended in an 8-0 win over Leicester. I feel like there's a celebration for Emma every week at the moment. She had 10 years at the club, 300 games. It's just the Emma Hayes year. And Manchester City beat Brighton 3-1 to put the Sky Blues three points away from the top three in the table. In the Championship, we saw London City stay top after a one-all draw against Southampton. And as the bottom two sides faced off, Sunderland made a stand with a 5-0 win over Coventry United. This is the Athletic Women's Football Podcast, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Well, we have already been speaking a lot this season about players still playing in men's boots, as you said, Alicia. Um, how many don't have a boot sponsor, which took me by surprise. I just thought everyone would if you played in the top flight of women's football here, but it isn't the case. And how it also could be linked to injuries. So to dive into this subject more earlier, I caught up with Laurie Youngson, who's co-founder of Ida Sports, who make bespoke boots for women and podiatric surgeon, Dr. Carly Richards. Hi, Carly, and hi to Laura as well. It's a very continental chat, this is. I'm on Zoom in my study. I've not ventured further than maybe 50 metres, but we've got Carly in Chile and we've got Laura in New York. So brilliant to see you both and thank you for your time. We wanted to chat to you off the back of our conversation with Spurs' Ashley Neville, who said that lots of players still wear men's boots and that they were having a session about how they might impact injury going forwards. Now, I know Ida Sports makes fully bespoke boots for women. I mean, there must have been a motivation behind that, Laura. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's something that I I always had to wear kids' boots to play. And I was like, I'm an adult female. This is dumb. And then kind of knowing that professional players as well are still wearing men's and kids' boots, you sort of start going, well, actually, why is that? I mean, for me, the science is super clear, like men's and women's feet are different. So why are we wearing stuff that's not made for us? So I think it's such an interesting space to to look in and look at why, you know, if you're a, you're a professional player, why are you not being offered stuff that works for you and equipment that works for you to improve your performance? 
we have seen more conversations, Dr. Carly Richards, who's with us as well, about this now over in UK media. So I actually did um, a feature for Sky Sports recently where we looked at ACL uh, injuries and menstrual cycle and that link, not necessarily linked to boot wearing, but I've seen more articles and, and more conversations generally about it. And one of the findings was the lack of research. So can we start off with that? You know, how how difficult has it been to do research in this area for you? So it is difficult um, because it's, you know, a, a lot of the research on ACL injury and other injuries has been focused solely on men. And our anatomy is so different than our male counterparts. So in my um, recent research, we found that there are four different components to these injuries. One is anatomy. Our anatomy is um, extremely different than our men counterparts, which we all know. Neuromuscular is number two. Um, our muscles are different. We activate more of our quadriceps more when we land. And men have um, both equal quads and hamstring uh, dominance. So that plays a big um, part in strain on the knee. Um, number three is hormonal, as you mentioned. There are new studies out on the menstrual cycle and um, when women might be more prone to injury, but it's all in, you know, very early stages of these studies. So we, you know, there's no clear cut answer to that, but we are definitely looking into that and kind of tracking as to when women might um, be more prone to injury. And then finally, the environment, our boots, our field surfaces, those play a huge role in um, injury and prevention of injury, which um, is where the, the boot comes into play. Because we've seen that ACL injuries are so prevalent this season, do you think out of those four areas, is there one that's being linked to ACL injuries more than the others? So I think it's a combination of everything. I don't think that one, we can say, oh, this is definitely why. But I think that if we improve our equipment, it will help with prevention because the anatomy is a, is a big deal. So Women tend to turn in more. We have wider hips, which means our Q angle is bigger than men's. And then that puts more strain on the medial knee. And it's called, it's called internal tibial torsion. So the leg kind of turns in, especially when we land. So if we could have a boot that decreases pressure on the medial leg. That will help with injury prevention. So that's how the anatomy is linked to like the, the shoe structure and um, why it's very important that we start to separate the boot design between men and women. And this is hopefully where Laura pipes up and says, oh, yes, right on cue. That's exactly what we've done with our boots. Have you noticed or have you had reports, Laura, of, of in injury prevention? Are you finding that players have come back and said, actually, I feel more secure. I feel like I've got more support. 100%. So this is exactly the problem we set out to solve. And I think one of the things we've seen anecdotally, we've had our boots in the market since 2020, is that we've been able to increase the comfort for players, which reduces the fatigue, and then hopefully puts people at lesser risk of getting an injury. So anecdotally, we've got this from customers across the world who have been kind of putting on boots and going, oh, I'm not getting pain in my foot anymore. And, and there's a there's a range of things like, like chronic foot pain, pain in kind of under your foot, in your bones, in your little toe, things like that that's what players are experiencing they put on our shoes and don't get that and now we're starting to add some research data to those kind of anecdotes to show that actually yeah we want to prove that by wearing something that's made for you you're actually kind of preventing the risks associated with injury 
And how many women do you estimate are still wearing men's boots? Have you looked into that? I guess that's part <laughs> of your business. Like 99.9%, yeah. I'd imagine. Yeah. As you were talking, I noticed, Dr. Carly, you were nodding along when Laura was talking about under the foot, you know, the ball of the feet, the other different pains that you get. So mm-hmm. the type of shoe, it also depends as you've pointed out already about the surface and conditions as well. But to prevent injury, what what do you think or the biggest suggestion would be to anybody who's entering WSL football next season, for instance, if they're coming up from the, the championship and playing more regular professional football? So the arch support, it's huge in taking pressure off the medial leg and the medial knee. So that plays a big role in injury prevention. So the other thing that a player can do if they don't have access to the Ida boot, which hopefully everyone will soon, but um, insoles in the cleat is helpful, like an orthotic that gives you a little bit more of an arch support. And that takes pressure off of that medial knee and medial leg. And that's um, what Ida strives to do with their cleat. As I said before, women tend to turn in more. We pronate more um, because of our wide hips. So it just puts that medial column pressure. Um, it, It just increases that pressure on that ACL ligament. So the goal is to decrease pressure on the ligament and, and thus hopefully um, decrease the rate of injury. Nothing's going to prevent every ACL injury. Our goal is just to continue to, to study on what, what we can do differently with our women footballers to help decrease the risk. Another thing that I would like to mention is the stud length. So ACL injuries aren't always contact. As we know, a lot of times it's a plant and turn where the foot goes down, gets stuck in. And um, the foot stays and the leg turns and then you have that dreaded injury. So a little bit of a shorter stud length or more conical stud is helpful. So the foot will slide just a little bit when you have the plant and turn. And that will also help decrease the injury rate. Mm -hmm. And then we know that Ida Sports, your base is Australia, isn't it? That's the Australian market. So going into the, the World Cup, have you worked with Australia, with New Zealand internationals? Yeah, so we're doing a lot of work kind of behind the scenes and working especially with the podiatrists and physios, a lot of them down in Australia and New Zealand, and, and hopefully keen to kind of get our, our boots out there more in the mainstream so we can work with more players because it's really only the top players that have boot sponsorships and everyone else kind of either has to make do or you're getting a team boot. And boots are, you know, reasonably expensive if you're going through two or three pairs a season if you're playing professionally. So that's really our goal is to be able to work with more players especially ones that are not finding stuff that's working for them at the moment, because I think there's just a real opportunity to improve, prove that, prove their enjoyment of the game. And I think sometimes you don't even know that it's not like feeling good until you've tried something else. I mean, I, I had that experience of putting on a women's boot and I was like, Oh, this is what shoes are supposed to feel like, as opposed to, you know, kind of when you've been wearing stuff that's cramped and make, doesn't make you feel good. You don't play at your best. And what is the price point at the moment for your boots? Yeah, so we're about 120, 130 pounds equivalent or $160, although the exchange rate is terrible right now. Um, but the I think one of the things we're looking to do is the more we grow, the more we're able to bring out a range of choice for people. So we've just launched a boot that's more, I guess we, we were listening to parents. And so we've launched a boot that's more accessible for parents. And the more we've got coming next year as well is really cool because, again, it opens up that range and opens up the different surfaces that you're able to offer because that, as you say, is super important. Mm. And Dr. Carly, in terms of the future, we've we've generalised at the moment and we've just labelled women all together. But of course, we've got all sorts of different women. When I go into a shop, you know, there's an area for petite. I'm sure that 
ethnicities as well might come into into play is that something that you've looked at as far as um different anatomy sizes races is that what you're getting at yeah um we haven't we haven't delved into that specifically you know right now we're just looking at women because before it was men so okay we've (laughs) we've, you know separated the genders now which is step one but once we get more research on 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 women um which like i said it's still in its infancy we have so much more to do because there's so many different components of what goes into injury prevention um shoe wear is a big one but you know um, that are strength training, like we need to have female specific trainers to focus on our nutritional needs, our hormones, um, our neuromuscular differences between men. So I think we need to um, nail down just women. And then once we have that, then we can branch out into different subsets. We've just started a research project um, that's looking at older women and actually looking at comparison data. So pre-puberty, puberty, pre-pregnancy, post-pregnancy, pre-menopause, post-menopause, and actually looking at the life cycle of women playing sport and staying active. Because I think there's, again, there's just so little research on this stuff and people need different wicks, they need different shapes, and, and likewise you, kids. Yeah, kids. I was going to say, because you might be 13, 14 before you start wearing adult boots. And Dr. Carly, I can see you nodding along here as well. So mm-hmm. both of you chip in with this. I've been talking to some of Ida researchers about different things we can do for kids because um, I see what's called calcaneal apophysitis a lot in young um, kids, boys and girls, and that's um, inflammation of the growth plate of the heel bone. Um, It's very common in soccer players. And whenever I see them in my office, I put a heel lift in their shoe to take pressure off the the growth plate. And that makes a huge difference. So we've talked about, you know, maybe incorporating that to some degree or just doing something that helps prevent the childhood injuries that we see in in football or soccer. Can you just give a plug for your website so that people who are listening to this, we may have parents, we may have younger players who want to get bespoke boots. Where can they go? Definitely. So we're at www.idasports.com. Um, and we're shipping lots of different places. So, yeah, just check us out and get in touch. Thanks again for the work that you're both doing, Dr. Carly and Laura. Good day. Thank you. Thank you. Laura Youngston from Ida Sports and Dr. Carly Richards there. Now, Alicia, you've already been very outspoken about this already, about women's boots. Uh, do you think it impacted you ever in terms of injuries? Um, I couldn't say no to that, Lindsay. I think there's there's a whole host of you know I've done two I've had two knee reconstructions. So I did my right ACL in 2002, and then my second my left in 2009. But even just talking about yeah, sure, levels of comfort, blisters, losing toenails, and I know Laura really well, and I know what either sports are doing and what they're developing, and they've you know there's there's significant differences in in our physiological and biomechanical makeup. I always had a problem when I was younger, just playing at grassroots level, realizing that I've got narrow feet. I don't know whether you had narrow feet, but they're so difficult to be able to find well-fitting shoes for just generally, because if you've got narrow, they don't fill out, but often your toes end up, like you say, you get the black nails. It's disgusting. Did this all my life playing various different sports. I'm kicking about a bit. I can't Mm. imagine at the very top level having to play with boots like that? Do you just get used to it? 
Yeah, exactly. You just adapt, don't you? But it was a bit like we were playing in, you know, my first Aussie kit was a double XL men's. So I was rolling my shorts up about 10 times. The socks were a men's fit. So they were like a size 10 and the heel would come up halfway up my calf or you'd be folding the toe into the front of your boot so that it could actually fit. You know, so these wow. are all the things that, that the athletes these days shouldn't be worrying about. You know, it's it's all about, you know, for the top players, they'll have, they get their food. I was, I was talking to Viv Miedemar about it. You know, Adidas mould her foot so she gets her bespoke boots. And not every player can can get that, but that's that's what you want to hit. That's, you know, attaining the top level. But I think just at a really simple level they should be women's specific boots not just smaller men's sizing because you know a lot of women then have to buy kids boots because they don't fit into the men's sizes which mm. might be you know decent in a cost factor but actually you know fit they're even narrower the smaller it's just you know it's I can't yeah I mean what Laura's doing and what Ida Sports are doing I mean my Monday night football crew I think half of them like most of them are starting to wear the the Ida Sports boots now and even when you say kids' boots, what you mean is boys' boots. They're not children universal, are they? Tim, do you know of any work that Arsenal are doing in this area? I, I don't specifically, but I, I, I read about this like seven or eight years ago. And I was kind of like, uh, I guess my own ignorance. I was like, is, this is still an issue. It, it just strikes me as astounding because this has been known for years and years and years that so little action seems to have been taken around it. Yeah, I think it's a, it's the thought. It's the numbers game, Tim. That's what it mm. is. Uh, the assumption that not many women play or young women play football. I mean, being but having your feet in boots for your whole life is horrible, anyway. I mean, it's it's not like you want to see many footballers' feet feet on show. Believe me. After all the those years put of fetish around. handles on Twitter are yeah. not they're not reaching out to you, are they? <laughs> No, they know better. But, um, you know, but yeah, yeah, of course it's frustrating. It's 2022 and we're still talking about this stuff. And there's no, there's not enough action. There's not no action. There's not enough action. This is the Athletic Women's Football Podcast. Before we finish the show for this week, uh, time to look at what's coming up. Uh, Midweek, it's the Champions League as Arsenal hosts Juventus on Wednesday. I'm guessing you'll be at that one, Tim. I certainly will be, yes. I knew it. Uh, Chelsea travel to Real Madrid on Thursday, plus in the Conti Cup, Man United host Everton on Wednesday. Then at the weekend, it's the last WSL weekend before Christmas. Yes, it comes around really quick. Uh, We've got the Manchester derby on its way. Um, Also in France, it's the big one as Lyon play PSG. So from you both, thoughts on the Manchester derby. Where is that now? Is it that Manchester United are favourites for that one? That's a tough one. I think, oh, I don't, I couldn't pick either of them as favourites at this point in time, to be honest, Linz. I think it's going to be a proper derby, though. I think, you know, both teams are in good form, aren't they, at the moment? Tough one to call, that. Tough one to call. Mm. Yeah, and I think it's a defining game for both teams because City are on a good run, but they've beaten Mm. teams they should really be beating. United, I think, have got real wind in their sails from winning at the Emirates the other week. And that gives them, I think, I think that might give them the edge, actually, the fact that they got over the line in that game and won that. But I I think for both teams, it's a really, really defining game and it will define, you know, whether it's a fight for third or a fight for first, uh, potentially. If there's a loser in this, then, yeah, I I tend to think it will probably be a draw, but that's because I really struggle to call it. 
Okay. Mm. Well, it is Champions League week, so that means that we're on free demand and watch for the game that you'll be at where they're hosting Juventus. Uh, she loves to score a cracker in the Champions League, doesn't she? Uh, we will leave this one here for now. That's all we've got time for on this week's Athletic Women's Football podcast. Uh, Alicia and Tim, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Lynn. It's been a pleasure. And thank you as well at home for listening. Keep the comments coming on social media at The Athletic FC and at Offside Rule Pod. Forget the foot fetish people. You can stay away. We don't want to hear from you. It's always great to hear from everyone else. See you next week. The Athletic.